If you haven't been with us the past few, really the past few months, I was about to say weeks, but we've been in the Gospel of Mark for the past few months. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. Uh, Today we've made our way to Mark chapter 7, so if you want to take your Bibles and go ahead and make your way to Mark chapter 7, this morning we're going to be covering verses 1 through verse 23. So Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through verse 23. Now we would usually read this text at the very beginning. Uh, We're going to actually read it and let it unfold as we go through this passage together. That's a little bit different, but I'm going to start us off with a word of prayer, and I would invite you to pray with me for the next few minutes. Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And our desire, Lord, is we desire, God, all of our confidence, Lord, is in your words. And we desire, God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open up your word to us, Lord. Instruct our minds, God. We pray that you would take your words, your living, powerful, two-edged sword, God. And we pray that you'd pierce our souls with your truth. God, we pray that you would protect us and deliver us, Lord, from a sinful, prideful, arrogant intellectualism that doesn't make its way to our hearts and our affections, God. Lord, you know our sinfulness. You know, God, that we will go that route apart from your help. And we just call on you, Lord, that you would help us to hear from you. God, we pray that you would uh, cause us to meet together this morning for edification and for profit. Lord, help this time not to be in vain. Lord, help this time not to be in vain, Lord. We, all of our hope is in You, God, and we pray that You would help us to hear Your words, Lord. We cannot hear Your words apart from Your Holy Spirit, and we pray, God, that You'd help us to hear Your words. And I pray, Lord, that You would help me to teach Your Word, God. I can't teach Your Word apart from Your Spirit's help, and, and we pray, Lord, I pray, God, that You would help me uh, teach Your Word with the strength that You supply so that You're glorified in all things. Lord, this is our prayer. Come speak to us this morning from Your Word. Come change our lives, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. I'm excited about this message today, this passage of Scripture. Uh, If you've been paying attention in Mark, Mark has been giving us a heavy dose of the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. But we've had very few instances in the Gospel of Mark coming through thus far where you have actual content of Jesus' teaching. But we're going to dive big time into the content of Jesus' teaching this morning. 23 verses. We, we unpack the, not just the works of Jesus, but the words of Christ. And this teaching, Jesus' teaching in this passage, it gets to the heart of Christianity. I mean, pierces to the root of the heart of Christianity. So, uh, just a little bit more background before we dive into this. This passage is going to kick off the next few weeks in the Gospel of Mark. We're starting a new section in Mark. The past few times that we've uh, taught on Mark, we took a break last week, uh, two weeks ago, sorry. But the past few times that we've taught on Mark, we told you uh, over and over again that Jesus is beginning to wrap up His Galilean ministry. You remember us saying that? Now, He has. And this passage, he's about to transition to ministry towards Gentiles, which is a really good news for us, okay? Because we are Gentiles. We are the nations. And so we're about to jump heavy into Jesus' ministry toward the Gentiles. And this passage today is like a hinge that swings us out of Galilee and towards Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. Um, You know what? Let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 together. I want to make sure we get this in. 
So let's read that. Um, I'll start out with verse 1, and we'll just roll through verse 23. This is the Word of God. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of His disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, and from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the Word of God. So I'm telling you on the front end that this passage, the main point of this passage is about to get to the heart of Christianity. And this passage starts out with a controversy and we're going to see that in a minute. And it's a big temptation for us Did you see this controversy about Jewish law to be like, how in the world does that have anything to do with my life? And the temptation is to write it off as this doesn't apply to me. Okay? But as we press through in this passage, we're going to see that this is applicable in all generations and all cultures. In every single century, what's underneath this controversy is applicable to you today. It's binding. It's applicable. This is the Word of God for you. So, this, the, the main point of this passage is going to answer one of the most fundamental questions in, toward humanity. And the question is this, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Or to make it way more personal, what's wrong with you? Surely as you look out into the world, and surely as you look into the mirror, you know that everything is not right. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong with you. Now, 
Every single one of you in this room, more than likely, okay, there's some of you that grew up in different cultures, but more than likely, every single one of you, okay, grew up in a culture that was soft on sin. Almost every single one of you. And here's what I mean by that. You grew up in a culture, in a world system that has a worldview, right? Now, our culture is high on human dignity, okay? Apart from certain issues like abortion, that would certainly be an exception to the rule. But think about this. Your culture, by and large, is very strong on human dignity and human rights. You see it all the time. People are arguing for the rights of humans, rights of humans, human dignity. But your culture is wrong in this regard because they take that, they, the root of, of where they're coming from on that is your culture thinks that at the root, at the very bottom, at the very core, that human beings are basically good. That is, per, that is unbelievably unbiblical. Unbelievably unbiblical that human beings are basically good. So you need to know this. This is the worldview that you are entrenched in. Okay, your culture doesn't believe in uh, the sinfulness of humanity. It doesn't believe in the judgment to come. This is the culture that we grow up in, and Jesus is going to push hard, push hard against this in our hearts. He's about to show us the problem with what's wrong with the world, and Jesus' answer for what's wrong with the world is, we are what's wrong with the world. You personally are what's wrong with the world. We, corporately, are what's wrong with the world. Why? Because we are sinners. Because we're sinners and we've sinned against God over and over and over again. This is the root of the problem of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us individually. We're sinners that have sinned against God millions of times in our life. Okay? Jesus is about to unpack this for us. To help us better understand this passage, you should have on this, this on your sheet. Let's break this passage into three sections. Uh, I, I got it there for you on your sheet. The first section is the charge that's brought against Jesus. That's in verses 1 through 5. And then the second section is going to be the counter charge. Jesus responds to His enemies with a counter charge. And that's in verses 6 through 13. And then the final section is really the main point, the content of Jesus' teaching. And we're going to find that in verses 14 through 23. So the first section is this, verses 1 through 5, that they're, they're about to bring a charge against Jesus. I'm going to read that for us one more time, verses 1 through 5. It says, When the Pharisees gathered to him with some of his scribes who had come, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Okay, So our passage, it, it begins with an intense scene. I want you to see that. How do we know that? Because there are leaders that have gathered themselves around Jesus in Galilee, and these people are from Jerusalem. Okay? About a 90-mile journey from Jerusalem to Galilee. Okay? Now, that's a big deal because this is before modern transportation. They just hiked 90 miles just to confront Jesus. Okay? That's a several-day journey. 
Now, here's what I want, want you to see is the intensity of, of the leader's hatred toward Christ. I mean, you really got to be mad at somebody to hike a couple of days just to confront them in a conversation. Do you see that? And they come in sufficient numbers to gather around them. And you see this in verse 1. Um, and then you got the leaders. These are, these are from Jerusalem. It could have just said the scribes and the Pharisees. But it says from Jerusalem. These are the heavyweights in the whole nation of Israel. The most powerful men in Israel are gathered around Jesus and they're looking to catch Him in something. And verse 2 tells us that they find what they're looking for. Look at verse 2. It says that they, they're referenced, they're trapped for Him. If they charge His disciples with eating with defiled hands. You see that? Now, this has nothing to do with hygiene. Okay? Their charge wasn't... Man, you got germy hands and you're eating with germy hands and you're going to get sick. That, that's not what the charge is when they say they're eating with unwashed hands. This has nothing to do with hygiene and it has everything to do with ceremonial cleanness before God. Okay? In fact, the word that says wash, wash their hands before they eat, it literally means wash with a fist. Some of your older versions even say that, that wash with the fist. And so this, they're not sitting there scrubbing their hands, scrubbing all the germs off their hands. They got their hands cupped and they drop a little bitty bit of water over their cupped hands in a fist right before they eat. This is a ceremony, a ritual. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with taking dirt off your hands. This is a ceremony and a ritual. Now here's the interesting thing of this passage. And th- this is going to be several times over you're going to see this. Um, this is my Bible. I got a large print Bible. It's pretty thick. Okay, And here's the interesting thing about what we just read in uh, that little section. You could read this whole thing cover to cover, the entire Bible, and you would see zero, a big fat zero. Nothing in the Word of God would it even come close to commanding you, to giving you any kind of instruction of cupping your hands and dropping a little bit of water over your hands as a ritual before you eat. This was not in the Scriptures. It was part of tradition. And the Pharisees, they knew this. They didn't even attempt to cite a verse when they brought the charge against Jesus' disciples. You, you could have seen that, right? Like, you're not doing what Moses told you. They don't even say that. They say, you're not keeping the tradition. And you, so I want you to see in the very beginning that this, this conflict is regarding around not the Scriptures, but around tradition. Okay? And this is important because never in the Bible, never ever in the Bible, do you see Jesus downplaying the law of God. It never happens. Very often in the Bible, you see Jesus confronting over and over and over again in the Gospels, tradition, the tradition of men. And this is the root of this conflict. The tradition of the elders that's referenced here, it was a body of oral doctrine. Okay? It started as interpretations, plural, of the law of God. Okay, one of many, you know, like so and so says this, so and so says this is what this verse means. Over time, it became the interpretation of the law of God that was binding on all Israel. This is the tradition of the elders. Jesus does not submit to this tradition. Okay, the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, had gotten completely out of control by the time that Jesus comes on the scene. I want you to see this. I found this to be amazing. There are several examples of added ritual in the passage that you just read in the first five verses. Okay? We've already talked about they cupped their hands and they washed them. They dropped water over their hands, cupped with a fist. And they did this before they ate. 
But that same passage told you that they would go to the marketplace to, to get stuff from the marketplace and then they would come back. What does the passage say? It says that they would wash after they got back from the marketplace. Now here's the interesting thing. That's a different Greek word. The first Greek word means with a fist, pouring water over. That Greek word is the same Greek word for baptism. Okay? So these men go to the marketplace and they come back and they baptize themselves. Every time they go to the marketplace, this is part of their tradition. Okay? Now, do, okay, let me just say this. There is no verse in the entire Word of God that would command you to baptize yourself after you get back from the marketplace. This is the traditions of men, okay? not the Word of God. But it actually gets even worse than this. Even worse than this. In verse 4, we find out that they are washing, literally baptizing cups, pots, and couches. Baptizing couches. Okay? I don't want to take anything for granted this morning. I just want to underline this again. Nothing for granted. You can read the entire Word of God, cover to cover, and not one... Not one time will you ever be told in the entire Word of God to baptize a couch. It's not in there. Okay, This is hardcore perversion to the, to the law of God. They're baptizing couches. Okay, One commentator called this religion with a vengeance. This is absolutely ridiculous. But you see this here. And this should serve as an example to us of what sinful nature can do in religion. Okay? This is an example of what sinful nature can do in a religion. So the Jews serve as an example of us, these Jewish leaders, to never trifle with false doctrine. You're about to see Jesus hammer this head on. Never mess with false doctrine. If we tolerate false doctrine, if we tolerate it, if we say, yeah, we just want to be unified. We don't want to to have conflict. If we tolerate it, you have no idea how far, far away from the Scriptures that it can take you. Okay? They started baptizing couches. Okay? This is a warning for us. So, the Bible teaches us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we have a commandment, Jude 3, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We fight for truth. Okay? This is a reminder for, this, for us. Let me just hit this real quick. I was not going to mention this. Um, we'll talk about this more in a minute. But let me just ask you this. If you were to examine your life, your past week, your past two months, and you were to, you were to, to, to use this as an example, and the example that we have here, the warning is that they are obeying traditions instead of the Scriptures. Okay? For you, don't think about your neighbor. This is the big temptation. Don't think about your neighbor, the person sitting beside you. For you, are you a text-driven Christian or a tradition-driven Christian? So my question for you is, do you know the Word of God? Do you have Scripture verses that back up why you do what you do? Do you have religious practices in your life that you have no backup from the Word of God of why you do and what you're doing? Okay? This is extremely dangerous. You've left yourself wide open. There's no boundary. Apart from the Scriptures, there's no boundary. So these Pharisees with their oral tradition, they bound people's conscience. God had said nothing in His Word about do this when you get back from the marketplace. Okay? And they added to it. Okay? They bound people's conscience where God intended their conscience to be free. And Jesus hated this. And He came 
directly against this. He's about to take this group of religious leaders to the woodshed. I mean to the woodshed. This is a huge error in the Scriptures. You're going to see, you see Jesus in compassion and gentleness over and over in the Gospels. And then you see flashes of Jesus in seriousness. And He's about to urgently take these leaders to the woodshed. He's about to drop a hammer. Okay? And this is a part of Christ. We can't ignore this side of Jesus. He fights for truth. He fearlessly confronts these religious leaders, these teachers. So we're about to move into the second section now. Remember, this is the counter charge. They charge Jesus that He's not keeping the tradition. And Jesus responds. He lays a counter charge on His enemies. So let's read that in verse 6. It says this, And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So notice that Jesus responds directly to them. This is not Him talking to them in a roundabout way through somebody else. He looks them right in the face and He says, You hypocrites. He responds directly and He responds biblically. Jesus quotes a verse from the Bible, Isaiah 29, verse 13. This is the verse that he's quoting in, in Mark chapter 7. Okay? Now, I want to explode some common uh, Sunday school views of Jesus. Jesus does not handle these religious leaders with kid gloves. He doesn't. You don't, look, you don't handle people with kid gloves if you look them right in the face and you say, You're a hypocrite. You honor God with your lips, but your heart's far away from God. You're a hypocrite. He's not handling them with kid gloves. This is full-out seriousness. It's, now, and he calls them a hypocrite, and this is a huge insult in any culture, in any culture being called a hypocrite. Hypocrisy emphasizes the contradiction between what a man seems to be and what he actually is before God. Do you understand that? Hip- hypocrite is a word that's used... For an actor on the stage playing a part. He's a pretender. He's a faker. And Jesus is looking at this group of people and He's like, you're, you're hiding behind a mask. You have a public life and then you have a private life. You are, you're a fake. You're a hypocrite. You're a pretender. And then He draws the connection between their lips and their hearts. And that is really vivid, Right? Because Jesus, with those words, He tells us they have the right thing coming out of their mouth. They have the right things about God coming out of their mouth in their prayers, in their conversations with other people, in their songs to God. They're saying the right things. Is that not a huge warning for us? They're saying the right things about God, but what's the problem? Their hearts and their lips don't agree with each other. Their hearts are far away from God. With their mouth, they're making it sound like they're really close to God, really religious, really obeying God, but their heart is far away from God. So the Pharisees' motto, fake it till you make it. You ever heard that? Fake it till you make it. They completely ignored the fact that they were cold. They were cold towards God. Their hearts were far away from God. And instead of dust and ashes and repentance, Fake it till you make it. This was their motto. And Jesus looks them right in the face and calls them, you bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of fakes, a bunch of pretenders. And according to Jesus, this led to vain worship. Do you see that? Vain worship, empty worship, dead worship, pointless worship. Okay, They're going through the motions, but it counts for zero, for nothing. It's vain. 
Now, in this culture, is this not a huge warning for us in this culture? How many people do you know that name the name of Christ, that do nothing more than just run through religious ritual, church attendance, say the right things, turn on K-love, and no heart for Jesus, no heart for Christ. The things about Christ are, are saturated in their life, but it's just empty ritual. They're pretenders. Okay? Jesus looks them right in the face and says, hypocrisy. Our lips and our hearts must agree. So let us remember this in our songs and in our prayers. This is a direct warning for us. You just sang to God a minute ago. Do you know you either sang to God with a heart full of love for God or you sang to God like a hypocrite? You just did that. You did one or the other. There's no middle ground. Uh, This morning you may have gotten up and you may have prayed to God. Hopefully you prayed to God this morning. Do you know that you either prayed to God, you, you, your lips worked and you said things to God, and you either, your lips and your heart either agreed or they did not? This is a huge warning for us. What profit is it to us if we say the right things to God in prayer? If we sing these beautiful songs to the Lord in worship and praise, what profit is that if you don't love the Lord? If you have no love for God, Jesus counts this as an empty ritual, as empty Vain worship as hypocrisy. God hates it when you pretend to love Him. And it is not enough to say the right things about God and do things for God. You actually have to love Jesus or you are a fake. Do you understand that? That's the point of the text. Feel the weight of the warning. You actually have to love Jesus or you're a fake, a pretender, a hypocrite. You honor Him with your lips, but your hearts are far away. So we must do the hard work that's described in Proverbs 4.23. Listen to this. We must do this work, hard work. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance. With all vigilance. All diligence. Some versions say that. I got them mixed. Okay, keep your heart with all all diligence. Sorry, I memorized this wrong. Sorry, it's going, going bad. Keep your heart with all diligence. For from it flows the springs of life. Proverbs 4.23 And then listen to this. This is a warning in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Listen to this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Hear that. That's, That's New Testament letter to the church of Jesus. If you do not love Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let them bear the curse of God. Okay, This is weighty. This is serious. And Jesus tells us that this, the way that this vain worship spread all over Israel is that these leaders taught as doctrine the commandments of men. Instead of teaching the Scriptures, they taught tradition. And this spread everywhere. So Jesus charged these leaders with obeying men rather than obeying God. Now, Romans 1 teaches us this. Whenever we worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, when we bow down to men instead of God, it's called idolatry. Okay? So Jesus has already charged them, you are hypocrites, and now He's saying you're idolaters. And the funny, the, the, the funny thing is, is these men, they thought they were the most righteous people on planet Earth. Jesus looks them right in the face and says, pretenders, hypocrites, idolaters. He's coming against them. Verse 9 says, And He said to them, 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus said, you obey men rather than God, and then he gives them an example. Okay, and this is what we have here, an example of how they obey men rather than God. Okay? Notice that this is really, uh, this is a good picture of Jesus to me. Notice in verse 9 that Jesus uses a strategy called sarcasm. Okay? I want you to see this. As Jesus starts out verse 9, and he, in my version he says, you have a fine way. Some of your translations say you are experts. Okay? So first half of the sentence, it's going good. Okay? you got a compliment start and you're ready for this thing to finish off. You have a fine way. You are doing a great job. You are experts. And then he finishes the sentence with, at disobeying God, at rejecting the commandments of God. You see that? That is flat out sarcasm towards these leaders. He's basically clapping his hands and saying, you guys are doing a fantastic job of disobeying the living God. Okay, This is sarcasm. I love that about Jesus. So Jesus has a touch of sarcasm, but his main strategy, his main strategy is Bible. I've already told you that Jesus quoted Isaiah 29, 13. Well, in this passage, he begins to quote more Bible to these religious leaders. So the way Jesus Christ brings rebuke and correction is not with his fist. He could have jumped on them and beat them to a pulp, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't bring correction with his fist. He brings it with his mouth. He opens his mouth and the Scriptures, the Word of God, comes out of his mouth. Okay? Jesus quotes, this example that Jesus gives us has to do with the fifth commandment, the commandment that tells us to honor our father and mother. And so Jesus quotes Exodus 20.12 to these religious leaders. And then Jesus gives them the penalty for disobeying the commandment to honor your father and mother. And to do that, Jesus quotes Exodus 21.17. And so my point here is to show you that Jesus is full of the Bible. Jesus is full of the Bible. And I love that Jesus is sarcastic, but I really love that Jesus is full of the Bible. Okay? I said I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say it real quick. Real quick. This is to the men in this room for just a second. Okay? Real quick. You are more like Jesus Christ. Not when you're slinging weights all over the gym, when you're pounding protein shakes and squatting the house, when you're working yourself to the bone and providing your family. You're more like Jesus when you're rightly handling the Word of God than any of those things. You understand that? So my charge to you is don't ever be guilty of pouring your life in those things. Pour your life in the Scriptures. Be a man of God. Okay? Don't ever be guilty of pouring your life in secondary things. That would be a sad thing. Jesus is full of the Bible. Alright, back on task. The contrast in verse 10 and, 12, 10 and 11 is this. Jesus says, Moses said this, but you say this. He draws a contrast between what Moses said and what these men have said. So Jesus is about to tell us that something in their tradition, something that you say, does not agree with something that Moses said. Okay? And Jesus calls what they said, this practice is called korban. I want to talk to you about that for a minute. Korban was a vow 
to devote your possessions to God. But it was a deferred gift. Everybody know what that means? A deferred gift. That means you vow to devote it to God, but not yet. It's deferred. Okay? They didn't actually give their possessions to God. They kept their possessions, they managed their possessions, and then at death, they signed over all their possessions to the work of God. This is Korban. Okay? Now, nothing necessarily bad about giving your wealth to God when you die, right? Nothing necessarily sinful in doing this. This is, it could be a really good thing, a godly thing. But, hypocrites always find loopholes. Okay? And the loophole with Korban was, you get to keep your cash. You get to keep your money. You get to spend it on yourself until you die, and then you can just give it to the Lord. Okay? And so what these hypocrites did was they found a loophole around the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Now, that commandment has implications, honor your father and mother. It has implications that as parents age okay, and experience financial needs, then adult children, commandment still applies, they're obligated to help their parents, to honor their father and mother, to meet their financial needs. Okay? This is the way that God took care of parents for a long time. Uh, and so what do these men do? Their parents began to get older and have need, and these hypocrites, super spiritual, step back and they say, Korban. They declare Korban over everything that they had. Okay? And then, uh, Numbers 30, verse 2 says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. So they say they declare Korban over every possession that they have, and these men would have looked at their needy parents and basically said, I know you're in need. I know that I have some possessions and I could help you. But... I'm so spiritual that I've dedicated and devoted all my possessions to the Lord and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm sorry. And Jesus hammers this practice. He says, you're obeying men, but you're not obeying God. You're you're doing korban, but you're leaving the fifth commandment broken. Jesus hammers this practice as hypocrisy. So having corrected the religious leaders, Jesus is about to take us to the root of the problem. We have a far more serious problem than ritual uncleanness or traditions in religion. Our, the root of our problem is sin, and we're about to see Jesus teach us that. He's going to give us a doctrine of the summary of a summary of the doctrine of sin. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus Christ thinks about humanity. This is what Jesus thinks about sin. So Jesus turns away from the religious leaders. This is a different audience, and he says this in verse fourteen. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So I want you to see first off the urgency. He turns away from this theological conflict and he said, Hang on just a second. Everybody in this room, everybody that can hear my voice, All of you, hear me, listen, and understand what I'm about to tell you. There is nothing outside that can defile you. The only thing that can defile you is from within. You see the urgency of Jesus. Now why in the world would that much urgency in that statement? Because eternity hangs in the balance of you understanding where true defilement comes from. Do you understand that? 
Eternity hangs in the balance of you knowing the root of sin. With this teaching, Jesus turns some common theology completely upside down. It is a really common thing in our culture for, you, for people to say, you do bad things because bad things happen to you. You ever heard that? That's the, you do bad things because you have been victimized. Very common in this culture. Jesus just said, no sir, that's from outside. That's from outside. You do bad things from within. Do you see that? The root of sin for Jesus is always within. So according to the Bible, sin does not ultimately come from the devil. It does not ultimately come from the world. It comes from our sinful hearts. Do you see that in this text? It doesn't come from difficult circumstances that you've been exposed to. Even sinful circumstances that you've been exposed to. It comes from within. Have you ever noticed the way that we talk about sin sometimes? We talk about it like it's something outside. Like, we talk about it like we say, well, everybody sinned, you know? Or we say, yeah, I fell into that. You fall into something that's like you're walking down the street, it's not you, you just step in it, and, you know, it's not really me, I just fell in it for a minute. You know, everybody's, everybody's sin, I just fell into that. Do you see that? That's what we talk about sin like it's something peripheral. Jesus just said that sin is shot to the core from within. Jesus just said that the problem is not on the outside, it's on the inside from within. Verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus gives a private lesson to his disciples, and he repeats the same thing he told the crowd. He, he says again that holiness is not a matter of external, it's an internal thing. Okay, Things outside of you can't defile you. Things from within defile you. And then he declares foods clean because food has no effect on the human heart. Food is all about the stomach, and it's wrapped up in some ceremonial law in the Old Testament, but food cannot defile the heart. Okay, This is what Jesus is teaching in verse 20. Now we're going to get to the main thrust of this passage. Okay, This is the main point. We've been building up for this. Jesus is summing up everything with these next few words. So verse 20 says this, And He said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is humanity according to Jesus Christ. That's a sad picture. That's a lot different picture than you'll get on the news. That's completely different than man is basically good. You need to see that for yourself. That he just said that all that junk didn't come from Satan. It came from within the heart of man. You need to see yourself like this. So uncleanness, the uncleanness of the human heart, this is the main point of the passage. This is the main point of the passage. The heart is unclean. It's morally filthy before God. Okay? Now the heart, according to Jesus, is the center of man. 
And once that's corrupted, just like your, your physical heart, it pumps sin through every single faculty that you have, every single ounce of your personality. The heart defiles your entire being, your mind, your will, your emotions, your thoughts, your speech. Everything is corrupted because the core is corrupted. Listen to Jeremiah 17 verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Jesus isn't teaching anything new. This has been revealed in God's Word. The heart of man has never been basically good. It's deceitful. It's wicked. It's morally unclean before God. So our sinful hearts bring us into uncleanness before God. Do you see that? And our, because we're unclean before God, we, our sinful hearts have opened us up to the judgment of the righteous judge. Okay, this is the problem of man. This is the problem with the world. So, we would do a lot better off to stop paying attention to our diets and to the traditions of men, and we need to go to the root of the problem, and we need to find something that can cure us of this disease, of this morally filthy heart. In the core of man, we're shot through with sin. We need healing. We need salvation. We need deliverance from this wicked, evil heart. So Jesus' description of the human heart is ugly. He just graded every single human being and He gave them an F. Every single one. Okay? Now here's the temptation. Is you have got to see yourself like this. And the temptation is, well, Jesus was talking about criminals. You know, like bad people. You know? My point is, you have got to see yourself as bad people, as the bad one. Jesus has given us a description for every single human being. Okay? We are dominated by sin. We are shot through with sin apart from Christ. If you don't believe that, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday after you get off work, flick on CNN. Just, pull it, just, just read just the headlines of CNN one day after work. Man is basically good? I don't think so. War, thief, problems, sexual failures, all over the news, all the time, because experience verifies this. Man is not basically good. Man is shot through with sin. From man's wicked heart, he pollutes the entire earth. Okay, we are the problem. Go verify this for yourself. Notice that at the head of this list, we're not going to go through every single sin that Jesus just mentioned, but I want to just point you out to one, the first word. Jesus gives us a black list, and the first word on this list that describes you is that your heart... From your heart proceeds evil thoughts. And that might surprise you a little bit because we tend to think, well, we feel with the heart, but we think with the mind. Okay? But he just said, from your heart proceeds evil thoughts. So the heart, according to the Bible, is a broad enough category to include your thought life. Okay? Now, the Greek word for thought in this verse is the word dialogismoi. It's where we get our word dialogue from. So, you've heard this before. I want to remind you this again. You have a constant internal dialogue going on with yourself. At any given moment, you have thoughts. You're talking to yourself. You're having a conversation with yourself. Okay? This is, this is what Jesus would have you think about. Now, what He just said about the conversation that you're having with yourself is that it's evil. Okay, the dialogue that you're having with yourself and your sinful nature is evil. You are shot through with evil thoughts. 
So, how warned should you be about just listening to yourself think over and over and over again, day after day? How warned should you be about that? You need to preach the Word of God to yourself to expose these evil thoughts in your mind. You don't listen to yourself think over and over. You preach to yourself. You preach the truth to yourself. Or how about the common uh, theology of the culture? Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Stick that right beside what Jesus just said came out of the human heart. Do you see that? It falls right on his face. Why would you want to follow something that's shot through with sin? Do you see that? So these evil thoughts precede evil actions. So at the very core, you are dominated by evil thoughts in your sinful nature. This means that you actually want to sin. Nobody's forcing you to sin. You actually want to sin. You desire to sin. And your mind is consumed, your heart is consumed with evil thoughts. So this general category of evil thoughts is followed by six, 12 words. Six in the plural, six in the singular. The first six describe sinful actions, and the last six describe sinful attitudes. And Jesus' point in all this okay, is that humanity, the sinful heart of man, is comprehensively wicked. Comprehensively wicked. All this junk is flying, flying out of the heart. It's universal. So your takeaway from this list is supposed to be, that's me. Apart from Jesus Christ, that's me. That's who I am. If you have just the faintest thoughts in your mind of, I'm not that bad, you need to wrestle with this text. Jesus just said you were that bad. You are that bad. The human heart is shot through with wickedness, shot through with sin. You are included in Jesus' description. Do you realize this about yourself? That you have an evil heart? Sometimes the way that we talk about sin, you know, or the nicest grandmother that you can possibly imagine, the nicest old, 95, maybe 95 year old, you know, just never said a cuss word in her life, the nicest grandmother that you can possibly imagine has a sinful, wicked heart that shot through with sin according to Jesus. You need to see yourself like that. You need to see yourself like that. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, The corruption of human nature is a universal disease. The wickedness of man is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, temptations, and snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We don't need bad company to teach us, and we don't need a devil to tempt us in order to sin. All of us by nature have such a heart as Jesus describes. This is you. You need nothing besides you to be a sinner. This is who you are apart from Jesus. So this passage started out with our cleansing, all these washings. And Jesus finishes up this passage with the heart of man in desperate need of washing, real washing, real cleansing. Not the outward kind, but the inward kind. Why is this this even important? You have to understand true defilement before you understand cleansing. If you're still soft on sin, you're going to try some ridiculous things to make yourself right with God. Okay? If you believe that there's a little bit of good in your heart, then works righteousness would make a lot of sense to you because you actually think that you could actually do it. Okay? But if you see yourself rightly, if you see defilement rightly, then it's going to lead you to the right cleansing. And here's a warning for you. Jeremiah 8 verse 11 says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Did you know you could do that? 
Did you know that you could bring light healing? That you could say, peace, peace, you're fine. And somebody's not at peace and they're not fine. This is a warning to false prophets in the book of Jeremiah. Okay? Now, how would somebody ever bring a light healing? It has to do with superficial diagnosis and superficial cures. Okay? They're wrong on the root of the problem, therefore they're wrong on the solution. This is why education, it'll never do. Your government can never, legislation can never reform the heart. Okay? Works righteousness can't change you from the inside. Those are all superficial cures. And you need the real thing. You don't need peace, peace when there is no peace. You need the real thing. You need the real healing, not a light healing. So do you see how desperate that you are? How desperate need that you are of cleansing? The main problem with you is not what you do, it's who you are. You do what you do because you are who you are. Your main problem with you is not your sins, it's that you're a sinner shot from the core with sin. You're wicked on the inside, at the very core. That's your main problem. How can your main problem be addressed? You need a change on the inside. You need a new heart. You need transformation at the very core of your being. The way that Jesus said this in John 3, verse 3. He said, you're so bad that you need to be entirely recreated and reborn. Listen to this, John 3, 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's how bad we are. We have to be reborn Listen to this. If you think that there's anything that you can do, listen to Jeremiah 2.22. It says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. You could take a bath from now until you're 90 years old and you'll never be able to clean yourself of sin. You need to be born again. You need a new heart before God. Now here's the good news for us. Jesus lets you know humanity's greatest need, okay? Their greatest problem. And it sets up the stage for Jesus. And the good news for us is what? That Jesus Christ has come to meet our greatest need. This is the good news of the Gospel. He didn't come to give us a light healing, okay? He came, us to, give, he came to give us transformation, salvation, at the very core, at the very core of who we are. God had prophesied this cleansing that was coming for hundreds of years before Jesus. Listen to this. This is Zechariah 13, verse 1. God says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's the promise of God. He, he knew the problem. He knew the problem from the very beginning. He told you what He was going to do. Listen one more. Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. We can go from red like crimson to white like wool. This is a prophecy of the finished work of Jesus. We can go from shot through with sin to completely right with God through the work 
of Jesus. Do you see this? So this focus on all this cleansing and your desperate need is supposed to is it's supposed to drive us towards Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, the only thing that can change any heart, your heart. The only thing that can change your heart is the gospel. Okay, this is the message of the perfect sacrifice of Christ and His triumphant resurrection. This is the only thing that can change you on the inside. There is nothing else. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the only thing. God's only Son, your only hope. This is it. There is no other message. It's the only thing that can cleanse the human heart. So, God does not simply eradicate our uncleanness. In other words, He doesn't just look at us and say, you're clean, you're done, you're, you're good now. Okay? He can't do that because of His character. He has to punish sin. So the way that God makes us clean is through substitution. Many of you have heard this before. He makes us clean through substitution. And what this means is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And Isaiah 53 gives us a vivid description of this substitution. In Isaiah 53, 6, did you know that God the Father did something to God the Son? As He's going to the cross, do you know that something happened to Him? Isaiah 53, 6 says, Our, iniquity, our iniquities were laid on Him. Laid on the Son. Our sins, our uncleannesses were laid on the Lamb, the Righteous One. God put your sin on Jesus. Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. Your sins are laid on Him. He became your sin bearer. And the, all, what happens next is almost unbelievable. Almost unbelievable. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It means God laid your sins on Jesus and that He killed Jesus in your place. He poured out His holy wrath. He crushed His only Son. This is substitution. Jesus became your sin bearer and Jesus became your wrath bearer. God's righteousness is satisfied at the cross of Jesus. And Jesus offers forgiveness to us at the cross of Jesus. Okay? And then three days later, after Jesus bears the wrath for you, after He dies on the cross for your sins, Jesus is raised from the dead. He is declared in His resurrection. Humanity's true King. He's the true King of everything that's ever been made. Okay? But this is not automatically good news. You would think, maybe, maybe you would think that Jesus comes, Jesus lives, Jesus dies, Jesus raised, and everybody's saved. It's automatic. There are actually people who think that. Okay? But this good news is, autom- is not automatic. As uh, Acts 15.9, it tells us that the human heart is cleansed by faith. Okay? This means that there's something that's got to happen before this good news applies to you, before, this clean, before you get this clean status before God, and it's faith. You must believe the good news about Jesus. You must trust the one who died for your sins and the one who rose from the dead. Listen to John 6, verse 37. Jesus promises this to every person in this room. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. You might think, I'm too dirty, I'm too unclean. No, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. He can make every person in this room clean. Only through faith in Jesus. Tim Keller says this about the Gospel. The good news of the Gospel is that we are far worse than we ever imagined. But God has shown more love to us in Jesus than we had ever dreamed. 
You are far more sinful, close quote, you are far more sinful than you would have ever dreamed before God. You only know the tip of the iceberg of your sin. But in the same breath, God's Word says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And you know but the tip of the iceberg of the love of God that He has shown towards sinners, toward the unclean ones in Jesus. So most of us here today, we've been cleansed by Jesus, right? We're the church of Jesus. We're the people of God. We're the people that have been called by His name. So I pray that your takeaway today is that you would remember the depths from which you have been rescued. You were the filthy one. You were the unclean one. You were the one that was shot through to the core with sin. And Jesus saved you. And I pray that we remember that. That would be a, that would be a takeaway for us today. I pray that this passage reminds you of the depravity of your sinful nature that you still carry. Do you know that about yourself? That you still have a sinful nature. It's called the flesh. And it has nothing good in it. And you still wage war against it every single day. Let this be a reminder to you. And I pray that this passage reminds us of the dangers of hypocrisy. Pretending. Faking that we love God. Faking that we're following Christ with hearts far away from God. God knows your heart. If you're faking this whole follow Jesus thing, if you're faking, God knows it. I promise you He does. Listen to 1 Samuel 16.7. It says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I can look at you in a face-to-face conversation. I can't see your heart, but you can't hide your heart from God. He looks directly at it. It's laid bare before Him. You can't hide your heart before God. So I pray that every, everyone in here will be comforted by these words. This is the heart of God toward you. How do you deal with hypocrisy? How do you deal with it? Fakery? Listen to Proverbs 20, 23, verse 26. God says this, My son, give me your heart. Give him your heart. Wide open, no pretending before God. My son, give me your heart. So, as we close, I'll just give you a couple of applications. This, this passage, Jesus unpacks the doctrine of sin. Or you could call it biblical anthropology, the study of man. Jesus tells you what he, His doctrine regarding sin and regarding man, fallen humanity. Okay? Now, think about how these doctrines and these truths should affect... I'll give you three examples. How should the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of man affect evangelism? You think it has an effect on evangelism? If you really believe that man is shot through to the core with sin, you're going to come with some superficial message about Jesus? You're going to come with some works righteousness message about Christ? If you really believe that to the core, shot through with sin, you think it would affect the way that you evangelize? You think that you're going to, if you believe that, that the heart of man is desperately sick, you think you're going to try to talk people into following Jesus that you could actually produce a conversion? What do you, what do you think? Probably not, right? If you, were, if you were strong in the doctrine of sin, if our doctrine of sin and, and fallen humanity lined up with Jesus, we'd probably pray a whole lot for the Holy Spirit of God to save people. And then we probably do what? We probably preach this message that's called the power of God for salvation. We probably announce it to sinners. 
that God has given us this piece of spiritual dynamite regarding the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's, it's the power of God for salvation. It's the seed that brings forth eternal life. You think it changed the way that you evangelize? You know how common it is to offer Jesus in a superficial way? Your life has no purpose. You, you have no purpose in your life, and Jesus will give your life purpose. You ever seen that? Or what about the prosperity gospel? You have no money, you have no health. Uh, Jesus, Jesus will give you money and health, and He'll make you happy. Okay? These are superficial cures. It's a false gospel. By the way, you never, in the entire New Testament, go read, go read this for yourself, you never see the gospel offered to sinful humanity without legal, judicial language. Ever. Every single time, even to Gentiles, God the judge is mentioned, sinful man is mentioned, and then sinful man is commanded in every single place to repent of their sins, to trust in Jesus so that they would be forgiven before God. We can never move away from this. Okay? How would the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of man, how should it affect the way that we bring up children? If you really believe that sinful man is shot through to the core with sin, how often do you think you would pray for your child's conversion? Lord Jesus, save them. Lord Jesus, drive your words into their soul. Show them their sin, Lord Jesus. Open their eyes and let them see the gospel, Lord Jesus. How would the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of man affect the way that we deal with one another in the body of Christ? Soul care. If you really believe what Jesus just said came out of the heart of sinful men, how diligent do you think that you would be getting into the people's lives that are sitting to your left and to your right? If you really believe that, shot, shot to the core with sin, and they carry this flesh with them. How diligent do you think you'd be to stir them up, to check on them, to pray for them, to share the Word with them? Let me just say this in the other way around. If you believe what Jesus said comes out of the heart of man, the last thing on your mind, if somebody asks you how you're doing, how's it going, how's your walk with God, the last thing on your mind would be to be offended towards someone. That person's showing love for you. They're showing a concern for your soul. And if you believed anywhere close to what Jesus just laid out about yourself, you'd be thankful for it. These are just a few. This, this touches the entire Christian life. These are just a few of the ways that this doctrine is, is extremely practical. This doctrine of sin. So as we close, may God give every person in this room grace to see your need, your uncleanness before God. May God give every single person in this room an awareness of what Jesus Christ has done to cleanse you of your uncleanness. And I pray that every single one of us will leave here today with fresh love, fresh joy in Jesus Christ who's made us clean. No merit of our own. He's made us clean before God the Father. So let's pray. Lord, we love You and we thank You, God, that You didn't play games with us, Lord. You came to deal with our root, the root of our problem. God, we thank You for the new birth, that You did something supernatural in us. You made us new creations, Lord. You made us new creations in Jesus. You called us, just like Lazarus, out of the tomb, Lord. You called us to life from spiritual death, Lord. Praise to Your name, Jesus, for that. Praise, praise You, King Jesus, for salvation. And we thank You, Lord, that Your work of grace in us is stronger than sin. 
Thank You for this process that You have us in. Even now, Lord, of sanctification, You are ridding us of sin and all the effects, Lord, of the fall. And one day we're going to stand before You in glory and You're going to make us completely new. You're going to glorify us, Lord Jesus. We're going to bear, the, bear Your image forever and we'll be able to see You and worship You and we'll have absolutely no sin. We'll think right things about You. We'll feel the right way about You, Lord. No blindness, no cloudiness. And we'll see You, Lord. Behold Your face. Praise You, King Jesus, for Your work. We pray this in Your name. Amen.